Latitude Media, podcast at the frontier of climate technology. There are not that many technologies on track to get us to net zero emissions by mid-century. Advanced nuclear, carbon removal, electric transport, we're seeing varying degrees of ramping in these areas, but they're all behind where we need them. But renewables are mostly on the right trajectory, in particular solar. If the last bit of 2023 plays out how we had forecast when we published our most recent reports at the end of 2023, there's like one and a half terawatts of solar capacity installed globally by the end of 2023, cumulatively. Michelle Davis has been mapping the U.S. distributed solar market for nearly a decade for Wood Mackenzie. She recently became the head of global solar at WoodMac, where she now takes a much broader view on how the technology is getting built around the world. So I've had to really kind of broaden my horizons in terms of the solar industry over the last six months. A terawatt and a half of capacity is four times greater than global nuclear capacity. And yes, variable solar has a much lower capacity factor and much different impact on the grid than nuclear. But solar is expected to double, maybe even triple, in another decade. And while nuclear generation is flat at around 10% of electricity supply, solar is now at 5% and could hit 10% by the end of the decade. And that scale really hit Michelle as she started compiling data for a recent presentation. I gathered some data from our power team on what the generating capacity in the U.S. looks like out to 2050. And because I had never really like had to do this before, it really struck me that According to our outlooks, by 2050, 40% of the generating capacity, just like electricity generating capacity in, in the U.S., will be solar. And that doesn't include any distributed stuff that's reducing load before the grid even has to serve it. And around the world, a gigawatt of solar is getting built every day. And that's leading utilities and grid operators to the same conclusion as top solar analysts like Michelle. Solar is not just sort of one of the fastest growing, most important renewable energy technologies. It's one of the fastest growing, most important energy technologies, period. Like it will be basically the energy industry in the next couple of decades. Like and, and solar will be kind of like the gas of today. There's almost universal recognition that we are firmly in the solar era. But outlooks on how fast the technology will grow are mixed. And that's because there's a mix of constraints, like market design, trade barriers, and grid capacity that could cap yearly growth. I'm sort of seeing it becoming and evolving a mature industry with that continues to be quite large every year. But incremental growth is getting a little bit harder. This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. This week, a look at global solar dynamics. I'll talk with Wood Mackenzie's Michelle Davis about the tech and deployment trends that will shape the next decade of expansion. I want to take a brief moment to talk about the new season of the Big Switch podcast. We've been working on this for the last six months. We're so excited to bring it to you. Our production team at Latitude Media has been working for years with Dr. Melissa Lott and the team at Columbia University Center on Global Energy Policy uh, to make the Big Switch. It's a narrative show about how to rebuild our energy systems. And we are back with a five-part series exploring the supply chains behind lithium-ion batteries and the very complicated economic and political forces that come 
as batteries take over the world. So in this season, we break batteries apart, go to mining operations, manufacturing facilities, recycling plants, and talk to some of the most prominent experts about the pitfalls and promise of our expanding battery-based energy economy. And you'll hear the trailer a bit later in the show. So if this sounds like something you want to listen to, find The Big Switch anywhere you get your podcasts. There are two views of the global solar market emerging, both bullish but different. In its recent solar PV outlook, Bloomberg New Energy Finance projects well over 700 gigawatts of installations per year by 2030. Now, Woodmac expects about 370 gigawatts yearly by then. There are nuances to the BNEF analysis that incorporate unknown solar capacity that's unassigned to a particular country. And taking that buffer out, we're probably closer to a half a terawatt. But whichever forecast you take, we're still looking at 350 to 500 gigawatts being installed a year. That is a lot of photovoltaics. But growth, according to Woodmax analysis, will start to slow. And so I sat down with Michelle to understand what that means exactly. So we saw enormous amounts of growth over the last three, four years. At one point, I was looking at it, and it's like average annual growth over the last four or five years has been like 30% across you know, all global installations. But then... You know, this this year and next year, we're sort of hitting, we're kind of like hitting past that inflection point. And growth rates are actually going to slow in many different markets, China being one of them. So growth's actually flat over the next several years. Solar is going up that S-curve. You know, we were we were on the steepest part of the S-curve for several years. And now we're sort of like hitting that inflection point where growth starts to slow. In that sense, solar is is a mature industry, which, you know, that sort of evolution of that S-curve is is natural uh, for an industry to sort of move through. So that's, that's a good point. When you get to the flatter part of the curve, what are the contributing factors that um, slow growth down? Is it the grid constraints? Is it um, the amount of solar that markets can handle? What are those factors that are causing that flat growth rate? Well, the biggest markets that are leading to the flattening are definitely uh, China and Europe and kind of secondarily the U.S. And I would argue that in all three of those markets, you're seeing slowing growth because of grid capacity constraints. This could be an issue in, in, in the future, a little bit more so than it is today, but cost competitiveness doesn't really seem to be holding back solar. It's, it's very cost competitive. It has you know, high demand. There would be more solar installed if it wasn't for some of these other bottlenecks and challenges for the industry. So thinking about uh, China specifically, despite the fact that the capacity doubled in 2023, a lot of that was due to government procurements in, in locations that they call energy bases. So sort of like renewable energy locations uh, throughout China that the government sort of designed and designated as places where renewable energy projects could get built. But as a lot of that's come online, um, we, you know, we anticipate that that same, that capacity won't be at, you know, exactly the same growth rate as it was the year before doubling again, that would be, that would be quite astounding. And then furthermore, grid constraints are starting to limit project potential in a place like China. The land capacity and grid capacity constraints 
are are starting to to actually limit installations or at least uh, the volume that in the developers can put in the pipeline. So we've seen explosive growth for solar since COVID. Um, and in the U.S. alone, I think there are four, just over four and a half million solar systems installed and half of capacity, according to Wood McKenzie, was installed since 2020. In this, this, so this period was, was marked by really strong growth, but also all sorts of havoc in supply chains, um, labor shortages, uh, shutdowns that contributed to um, all sorts of problems with equipment availability. And so uh, it's been a very chaotic story. How would you describe this post-COVID growth period in solar? Yeah, I think the the way that I would uh, describe it is that the the industry was sort of preparing to be at this level of growth, but then in 2020 and 2021, COVID kind of like put it on pause. So the levels of growth that we started to see in you know 2021 and 2022, especially in distributed solar, you sort of have to make a distinction between distributed versus utility scale. That was always set to happen. There was just a little bit of a blip because of the challenges related to COVID and a lot of the supply chain constraints that were experienced. A couple of different things happened sort of under the surface. First, you know, solar costs were coming down quite a lot in the lead up to COVID, and they actually sort of flatlined or in many cases increased as a result of the pandemic. Obviously, that's whenever costs go up, that's challenging for an industry, but there was also a lot of uh, demand uh, there was flexibility on the part of of off takers, particularly for utility scale. They, you know, there was still a lot of demand for solar, and off takers were willing to go with increased prices for the most part. Um, so that sort of was a resilient aspect of the industry. In distributed, the loan market really has pushed a lot of the momentum in the residential solar industry for the last four or five years. And in the pandemic, interest rates had been low for a long time, but in the pandemic, they were even lower. So I would actually argue that the pandemic, because the because low interest rates have been such a big factor in fueling um, affordable loans for residential solar, the pandemic, in at least in the United States, actually helped drive more residential solar than ever before. So out of this period, supply chain security has been top of mind for almost every industry, uh, clean energy included. Uh, I'm wondering, what are the big stories for the reorientation of supply chains coming out of COVID? Like, did everything go back to status quo? Were there some fundamental changes that have reshaped the industry? Um, China, of course, still dominates every part of the solar supply chain. But um, I'm just wondering, have there been any real material changes that have come out of this period? I think the most material changes are in procurement behavior. Folks in the industry prior to the pandemic typically would just procure equipment in a just-in-time type of manner. And historically, that worked um, and was appropriate for the industry. Now, I think everybody thinks about it a little bit differently. They want to make sure that they line up equipment and they procure equipment in advance. You know, you, you don't want to risk buying too much procure too much equipment or paying uh, too much for that equipment, but developers definitely have a bit of a different attitude um, about procuring way in advance. They also consider different factors in terms of 
reliability of when it will be delivered. Um, so people might be willing to pay a higher price if it means that they get some of those items. Whereas, you know, before price competition was kind of, you know, the, the main thing dictating procurement in the solar industry. I'm Dr. Melissa Watt, and I'm the host of The Big Switch, a show about how to rebuild our energy systems. Batteries are finding their way into everything, from cars and heavy equipment to the electric grid. But scaling up production to meet the demands of a net-zero economy is complicated, and it's contentious. If every country says we need to own the entire supply chain because we want all of those economic benefits, it's going to make the clean energy transition so much harder. In a new five-part series, we're digging into the global battery supply chain, from mining to manufacturing, and we're asking what gets mined, traded, and consumed on the road to decarbonization. If we think climate change is the existential threat facing our planet, we have to be having a broad conversation about where we want to get the minerals that build these products. Listen to The Big Switch from Columbia University's SEPA Center on Global Energy Policy, available on February 28th, wherever you get your podcasts. The global solar market is diversifying. Solar is spreading everywhere around the world at this point. But the market has largely been shaped by Europe, the U.S., and China. And China, which has successfully achieved its mission to dominate clean energy, dwarfs everyone. And that's not going to change, says Michelle. How big is China's role in this industry right now? And will that story just continue to persist? I mean, the story of the last 15 years of solar has been the story of China. Is the next 15 years going to be the story of China? When it comes to manufacturing, yes. China has over 80% of the manufacturing capacity for every component, important component in a solar module. And, you know, we track uh, factory expansions and announcements. And even if all the different announcements, whether in China or in the rest of the world, come to fruition, the share that China makes up isn't really going to change that much, like maybe a couple percentage points as other countries around the globe build out module manufacturing. So the the sort of like very simple and short answer to your question is that we just expect China to continue to absolutely dominate manufacturing. That's not going to change anytime soon. Yeah. So what does that mean for production capacity, for module supply? We are now entering a period of module oversupply again, and we're seeing pricing fall substantially week over week. Um, what does pricing look like right now in 2024? And what does that say about the market dynamics of, of module supply? Well, in terms of pricing trends just for Chinese modules, we do expect some further declines throughout 2024, depending on what module technology you're talking about. Um, modules can be you know, 15 to 18 cents, and we expect that they might go down a couple more cents, maybe you know 12 to to. 14 or 15 or something in that range over the next year, we anticipate that that will be the floor. Uh, that will sort of be the, the trough in module pricing because markets are going to respond. The you know current situation is that lots of factories are operating at somewhat low utilization rates. And the, the fact of the matter is that as, as we continue with pricing being so low, some factories are either going to uh, close certain lines or close entirely planned expansions aren't going to actually manifest. 
there will be sort of consequences. And that's something that we, uh, we've we started to write about a little bit more at Wood McKenzie is that there will probably be a certain level of market correction. And so by you know 2025 or so, we do anticipate that, that pricing will start to go up a little bit more, not a whole lot, um, but basically 2024 should be the floor for some of those module prices. There have been a number of efforts to the Inflation Reduction Act to scale up both battery and solar manufacturing here in the U.S. Um, there's been a lot of attention on battery manufacturing because of the rise of EVs um, and and a ton of the new activity that we've seen as a result of uh, the the new EV tax credits has brought a lot of battery manufacturing, retooled factories, new new production factories. How has this impacted solar? So there are also specific tax re- requ- tax credit requirements for uh, solar cell manufacturing. Are Inflation Reduction Act incentives creating the same level of activity in domestic solar production as they are in battery production? That's a good question. I would say the IRAs generated a lot of interest in module manufacturing. There's, I think we're, we're tracking something on the order of over 120 gigawatts of module manufacturing announcements. Not all of those m- will materialize, of course, but that's you know 10 times what the U.S. currently has today. I think the difference with the, uh, potentially a difference with the battery manufacturing industry is that the U.S. would virtually have to build cell uh, manufacturing, which is just, you know, modules made up of um, a bunch of cells, they'd have to build a cell manufacturing uh, industry basically from scratch. There's no real, there's there's no cell manufacturing in the U.S. to, to speak of. There have been some announcements as a result of the IRA, but we expect it'll probably take at least another few years for that to actually manifest. And without cell manufacturing here in the US it makes you know building out that domestic that fully domestic supply chain and truly taking advantage of some of the domestic content incentives in the IRA a lot harder and and on the IRA generally what do you think the impact on the solar industry will be over the next few years both in terms of production and installation what do we expect to actually play out when the IRA was first passed in uh, August of you know 2022, we we modified our forecasts and we anticipated that over the next five years the IRA would increase installations in the U.S. by like 40 percent, pretty you know pretty big impact from a very historic piece of legislation. We still anticipate that that will that that will pretty much play out. The timing has been slower than folks had anticipated. There's, you know, it's taken over a year for different programs and rules to be published by uh, the IRS and and other government entities, and it and no one was really expecting, and there's still more to come, frankly, and no one was expecting it to to be uh, quite this long or arduous to kind of like ramp up a lot of the new stuff in the IRA. So that's sort of that's installations uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, with manufacturing, I think the IRA will have a notable impact on the manufacturing sector. Again, like I said, we don't anticipate all of that 120 gigawatts of module manufacturing is going to get built. We expect it'll be more like, you know, 50 or so over the next, uh, you know, four or five years. But if, you know, assuming that that plays out, that will be 
one of the biggest expansions of manufacturing capacity for solar that uh, that really the U.S. has ever had. One really huge benefit of all that is that will it will bring a lot of diversification and more reliability in the solar supply chain, which obviously is welcome given everything that you and I have talked about today. And the U.S. industry, I think, craves not being so vulnerable to different types of political risk. There are a bunch of other challenges in the U.S. Um, grid constraints are a huge problem, uh, major interconnection backlogs. Um, you have this major policy change in the top solar market in California that is going to cause um, residential installations to crash. And um, there are, of course, still equipment shortages. What are the strengths and weaknesses in the U.S. market right now? One of the just immediate strengths, I would say, is is just the strong demand for solar. The primary drivers of utility-scale solar procurement, at least, are corporate buyers signing contracts and voluntary procurement on the part of utilities. That's where the majority of utility-scale solar, or how the majority of utility-scale solar is procured in the U.S., that's compelling. That basically is saying that most utility-scale solar in the U.S. comes from utilities and corporate entities saying, we need more clean energy. The weaknesses in the U.S. are definitely, you know, all of those things that you that you uh, touched upon. The sort of unfortunate nature of the way that our governments are set up in the U.S., mean that there's all these levels of bureaucracy when it comes to building transmission and distribution capacity. You know, democracy has lots of benefits, but uh, that might not be one of them. <laughs> um, and we need more We need more grid capacity in order to have this net zero future. It, lo- lots and lots of studies show that, you know, a doubling or a tripling of transmission and distribution capacity. There's similar things at play with interconnection queue issues. You have, you know, FERC regulations and different ISO regulations and lots of potential changes that are taking place um, within those processes. There's just multiple different layers that developers have to navigate, and that's really challenging. So then what's going to happen to the U.S. market in 2024, given all that? So in 2024, overall, we're forecasting that the U.S. market is going to grow 10%. It varies a little bit by segment. Um, We're seeing a little bit more growth in uh, utility scale than in some of the other distributed segments. It is less than some of the most gangbuster years that the U.S. sector has had, that's for sure. Um, You know, I think this industry is sort of used to enormous growth year over year, with obviously the exception of 2022, which was the first year the industry contracted in like five years. But sort of getting back to that theme of maturity, I think a lot of industries would be quite happy if, you know, kind of on average, their growth was in the, you know, low teens. For Maybe for the, the solar industry, a lot of folks might think of that as, as low growth. But the, the kind of fact of the matter is that this is becoming a mature industry. We're not going to see, you know, 70, 80% growth every year. The industry is not, you know, multiplying many times over from a small base. It's no longer a small base anymore. It's a big base. It's, you know, it's going to grow to be the dominant amount of capacity in the U.S. electricity generating market. So I think whether or not it's good or bad sort of depends on 
depends on your perspective. Hmm. So that brings us into some bigger tech trend questions. I mean, what what do you think the most important technology trends are in solar right now? Both it could be in in manufacturing or in power electronics or in in downstream. Yeah, I think there are two that I think are important to touch on. One is is definitely module technology. One of the reasons for the massive expansion of manufacturing in China is uh, not just obviously increasing the amount of manufacturing of different solar components, but also the type. So we're we're going to witness over the course of the next three, four years, a pretty big shift from mostly P-type modules, which is just you know a cell technology that's mostly the older technology, to predominantly N-type modules, and particularly technologies like Topcon and heterojunction. Uh, and those are just, you know, those are just names for different types of cell technology that are slightly more efficient than the older generations. So just in a you know a few short years, manufacturing is going manufacturing of solar is going to completely change in terms of uh, the technology that's spent that's being produced. Those n-type module technologies are a little bit more expensive, but it's usually made up for with higher production. Um, of those modules. And that's really, that's a, a big reason that there's going to be sort of this market correction in supply chain like we've been talking about. There's, you know, it's going to be a bit of a, it's, it's, a, it's a big race and competition to produce the uh, best, most cutting edge technology. And that's really going to create a lot of winners and losers in the solar supply chain. I think the other technology trend um, is just the importance of increasing attachment rates for solar plus storage in the DG space. Putting batteries co-located with solar is pretty standard practice now in utility-scale solar, at least in the United States. But in my opinion, solar plus storage attachment rates in the U.S. are like not high enough yet for batteries to really like be a potential game-changer in VPPs. So I know VPPs have gotten a lot of attention this year. Um, I know our friend Jigger is a huge... VPP advocate. Um, yes, and he's also said that like every every solar company is going to soon become a VPP company. Right? Do you right. think that's that's overstated? <laughs> I mean, it won't be overstated if those companies also make a concerted effort to increase their attachment rates. But when you you know when you think about the sort of the scale of of how VPPs could contribute, at least when you think about solar plus storage systems and VPPs. Just the amount of batteries that are available in in any given state, besides maybe say California or uh, Hawaii or Puerto Rico, is just relatively small. Um, VPPs are, you know, this makes sense, but currently a lot of the capacity in VPPs is smart thermostats, which is great. But if you really want like a notable amount of battery capacity for you know either residential or commercial solar plus storage systems to really play enough of a role in the VPPs that a utility could actually make a decision like not to build a power plant, we're a long way away from that right now. So solar is becoming a terawatt scale market. As we look through the end of the decade at the industry's expansion and sort of flattening growth and maturity, what storylines do you feel confident about? What storylines feel a little less clear and wildcardish? 
Well, it's hard not to bring up the potential changes in solar supply chain. You know, I think the U.S. market in particular really learned how quickly things can change if a certain policy or you know, trade restriction goes into place. You know, things things changed overnight and quite dramatically in early 2022 when there was the proposal of a of a potential anti-circumvention tariff for Southeast Asian countries. Or, you know, all of a sudden in the middle of 2022, no one could import modules anymore because Customs and Border Protection was implementing the UFLPA. In my mind, when I think about big uncertainties, that's one of the the biggest ones, I think, in terms of the like lever that you could pull. If a certain government or, um, say, the EU decides that they also want to restrict polysilicon from the Uyghur region of China, that would be enormous. It, you know, overnight, all of a sudden, a huge portion of the polysilicon supply globally can't be used for solar modules in Europe. The you know the the in, the potential impact of some of these political risks is now quite large. Um, that's that's kind of like one big uncertainty that I see in the solar supply chain. Another one, and this is a little bit longer term, is it's obviously fantastic that we have such strong outlooks for solar, and it's going to you know grow to be like you know forty percent of generating capacity in the U.S. by twenty fifty. But that will also present a ton of challenges. You know, more and more solar, the more and more solar that gets installed, the more midday solar prices are just going to crater and, you know, be consistently negative. So to me, kind of one of the longer term uncertainties is like, how long do we have to go until solar is, is eating itself? You know, will, will the industry adapt soon enough by having more batteries on the grid and building projects in a way that increases their grid value so that that doesn't happen. Michelle Davis, head of global solar at Wood McKenzie. Thank you so much. You're so welcome, Stephen. I'm so glad I was able to be a part of it. That's it for the show. The Carbon Copy is produced by me. It's mixed by Sean Marquand, who also wrote our theme song. If you want to read our takes on the solar industry, go to latitudemedia.com newsletter, and you'll get all our news in your inbox. And for other deep dives, you can listen to our companion podcasts. We've got Catalyst with Shale Khan and The Latitude, which is uh, versions of our stories. So we've got like an audio companion to our editorial coverage on the site. Latitude Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude backs visionaries accelerating climate innovation that will reshape the global economy for the betterment of people and planet. You can learn more about their portfolio and investment strategy at preludeventures.com. Support the show by spreading the word to your colleagues and friends who will find value in these conversations. Word of mouth is really important for growth and also ratings and reviews. So go to Apple and Spotify and hook us up with one of those as well. We'll catch you next time. I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Carbon Copy from Latitude Media. <laughs>